On this episode of the Liberty Corner podcast, big question that's happening is, will AI end or create World War III? I would like to believe it'll end it before it ever happens, but you can get both of that on the internet if you dig deep enough. Uh, for the beginning, just tell me a little bit about your business. What is it that you do? Yeah, so I'm a creative entrepreneur. I've been building creative companies for 20 years. And my first company, I started in my university dorm room. And I was doing web design and UI UX. And then from there, I got really into marketing and branding and built that company up. And then started doing a lot of angel investing um, in other, other tech companies. And that's mostly what I do. Now, I basically help people find their unique storytelling capability, whatever it is, and just help them grow their businesses through brand strategy, marketing mm. strategy. What, what was it like when you started? Oh, in, it was terrifying. In the dorm. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, when you have nothing to lose, it, it seems a lot mm. easier. Um, so I'd say in the beginning, it was definitely just like, trying to figure it all out and navigate all that. So it definitely was interesting for sure. Oh, what was the thought process of, you said, what was it, web design? Yeah, the first business was, I was Just, doing a lot of web design, yeah. Was it something you experimented with on the side or you already, so you were in college and mm -hmm. you were studying something and you did it on the side or was it already a part of your college courses that you took? Oh, yeah. I had nothing to do with my college course. Um, mm. I was a self-taught uh, engineer and designer. So I was writing, started writing code when I was like 13 and then taught myself how to design. So it was just skills that I had picked up and learned myself. Definitely didn't learn it in school. <laughs> so it was a passion that you turned into a career. 100%. Absolutely. Uh, maybe walk me through the steps. What, what did happen after you had this idea? Where did you get your first clients? What was it like in the beginning? You said you were really scared. How yeah. did you overcome that? Did you just start do something? Or what yeah, did you do? I think so. It's a great question. The What I always tell people is you have to experiment with what you love to really find like what it is that you truly want to do. Um, so at that time, I was just making different things. I was making apps. I was making sites. I was making um, just different things that I was passionate about. Um, I had some friends or like family members that like needed websites. And then I was getting like, you know, small little like local businesses, like a pizzeria or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was just doing these like really over the top, crazy interactive site experiences. And um, I guess it caught the attention of some, some pretty big people and some pretty big brands. And then I just started getting emails from like big agencies and they were like, Hey, are you looking for freelance work or are you looking for work? And, um, that ultimately is how I ended up getting a bunch of like really cool clients and brands when I was like basically still in college, um, working with like MTV and ESPN mm -hmm. and just some like big name brands. And then the more I would just put out there, what I would say is great work begets great work. So what I mean by that is that the more you put out there that you want to do, the more you'll get back. Um, and it's this interesting like loop of like how you can keep doing it and keep getting interesting things back. So that's what I say to look anybody who's trying to start a business, like whether you're trying to be a videographer, like you were just saying you were just a few moments ago, or whether you want to get into, 
you know, being a personal trainer, right? So like one of the things I would say is if you're building a skill, give that skill away for free to understand who thinks that skill is valuable and then just slowly increase the cost from free to paid and then, you know, go <laughs> as high as you possibly can. Um, and, you know, value is the price that people are willing to pay. Um, so focus on the value you're able to create for those businesses, for those people, whatever your skill is, whether it's helping someone get in shape or helping someone tell their story online with video. Um, you know, I've, I've had the privilege to be involved in a lot of different types of businesses. And I think the one thing that all businesses have in common is um, the customer has a need, a want or a problem. And if you're able to satisfy and fulfill that need, want or problem, and you can do it in a profitable way, you have yourself a successful business. Um, and then if there's a good enough amount of supply and a good enough amount of demand for the thing that you're doing, you can just continue to achieve mastery in that thing and add more and more value. Do you have some ideas on maybe how to balance um, your passion for something? I think especially in the creative industry, there are a lot of people that are more passionate about what uh, they are doing than maybe in some under, other industries. But how do you balance this passion with making money and also, that's what I learned in my experience, um, that it's sometimes hard to balance the things that you enjoy doing and the things that actually make you money. So yeah. was this for you easy to balance? Did you just, what was more, most passionate to you was also the job that paid the, the best or how was it for you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. What I would say is, when I was first getting started, I was really passionate about design and the internet and putting things on the internet. So I think a lot of the stuff I was doing, I was really passionate about. But what I would also say is it's a difficult one because what I don't want to say is like, do things that you are only do things that you're passionate about. Because the truth of the matter is, is that I know a lot of people who have had to do a lot of things they didn't want to do to get to their passion. And I think nowadays it's much more common for people to work on things that they're not passionate about to leave mm -hmm. space for like hobbies. So I have some friends of mine that like worked really hard for like the first 10 years of their career to build um, and amass a lot of wealth. And then from there, then they were able to kind of do whatever they wanted. So now they're not doing the same thing, but ultimately it's a tough question because for me, I was just really passionate about design and brands and helping people go forward. So I chased that. And I think that I it was at an interesting time where it was at the, you know, timing is everything in business, right? And um, like, I'll give you an example. You said you're a videographer um, and your audience is young entrepreneurs. There's a lot of people that offer video services. So let's say that you really enjoy editing and editing's your thing. Let's say you really enjoy motion graphics and motion graphics are your thing or 3D. What kind of video editing? You know, are you really passionate about like documentary style videos? Are you really passionate about like short social clips? Like where's your focus? Because I think nowadays there's a lot of supply. And the, in my opinion, when the supply is higher than the demand, then you have a surplus. When you have a surplus, you have to be that much more niche in terms of what you're delivering. So like, if you're like, I love to, to edit live action for action sports people. Well, then, and that might even be too too general, right? You might have to say, I like to do live action, short film editing for Instagram and YouTubers that are focused on skateboarding and snowboarding, right? That's a very much more specific audience. It's not to say that you can't do 
video editing for another type of client. But if you become known as like Leon, the, the skateboard snowboard guy um, or person, right? Like then that I think will be a different type of thing than someone who does corporate events or weddings as an example. So I do think that the, the riches are in the niches and the more that you can be focused on where you believe you deliver the most value. So there's this thing that I discovered a long time ago called Ikigai, which is ultimately like, what are the things that you love to do? What are the things that you get paid to do? And where, you know, what is the problem that the world needs? So I think finding that is really difficult. And I had to experiment for like 10 years to find the thing that I was the most passionate about that I was able to get paid for. So I don't think it's as straightforward as some people think. Um, it, it requires a lot of work and a lot of experimentation to really find that thing. If you, if you're listening to this and you're like, Oh, I know exactly what that thing is. You're, you're blessed. You're lucky because you know, not a lot of people know what the thing is until they stumble into it. Yeah. But I also would say it's, I, I think uncommon that you just know what it is. I, I mean, I've seen some people, obviously they immediately knew what they wanted to do, but I think for most people, it's really trying different things yeah and i think it's also where you can get um, caught because if you try something it doesn't work out and then you think ah oh, um, i'm just going to back to my old corporate job and it's really trying multiple things and really um after the fifth thing that, that doesn't work out maybe try the sixth thing and um for me it has also been that um I could see patterns and different things that I enjoyed. I liked this from from this area and this from this area. And I think over time you piece together your career. And I think this is also where it um, um, gets from a um, passion hobby to a business, which is also, I think, a really important step that you have to do in the long term because... Um, Run, running a business is different than just doing freelance work on the side. Um, can you maybe go into it? I don't know your background that, that well, but I assume that at some point you turn what you are doing into a real business yeah. that we have employees or... Yeah. 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 How was this transition for you? How long did it take? And um, what was some mental shifts that you had to do? Yeah, I think the biggest mental shift that every business person has to go through, irrespective of business, is you can't do it alone. What I mean by that is like, there's actually a lot of solopreneurs right now that do do it alone, but doing it by yourself is pretty lonely. So depending on how much you want to scale or what you want to scale, it's a lot more possible now to have a seven-figure business, you know, using all these AI tools and different ways to, to grow an audience. So that's absolutely more possible now. I don't feel like that was as common or as possible back then. So to answer your question, I'd say probably eight months into the business is when I hired my first employee. Um, and the reason I did that primarily was because there just wasn't enough time. So I was doing everything, right? From you know the accounting to the design to the client management to all those things. And I just needed... I landed a bunch of software projects and I didn't have enough time to do all the code. So I had to bring in a coder and then I landed a bunch of design projects and I didn't have enough time to do all the design. So I hired a designer and then I realized that the business was growing and I didn't want to be doing like accounting work or QuickBooks work. So then I had to hire someone operational to like do that work because, you know, 
we had to send clients bills because I realized, oh crap, like I'm so busy doing the work. I haven't built any of the clients in a month or two. So then like I had to get the money to keep coming in. You know, cash is the king for any business. Um, and I think the, the thing from there that was the turning point moment was, did I want to be in the business or on the business? And I think that I've always wrestled with that a little bit is like, when you start a business doing something that you love, you have to ask yourself the question is like, do you want to always be the contributor doing that work? Or do you want to hire people to do that work? Because like one of the hardest things about growing a business, especially a service business, is that when you are the product and then you start realizing that you have to go out and do sales and business development and marketing and all that kind of stuff to grow the business, then you kind of can't be the product anymore. So at that point, if you are known as the video editor or the coder or the designer, well, if you want to grow that business and really make it scalable, you either have to hire someone to run the business, which you could do. Um, you could hire a business manager or you know operations person. But in most cases, what ends up happening is the the founder or the person who starts the business ends up turning into you know the head of the firm and then bringing in people to ultimately execute the work. So that's where I think that. That was tough for me because, you know, I held on for a real long time. I actually really love doing the work. So um, still to this day, as much as I've got this great team that does does the work and that sort of thing, I just still for fun will design and code because I just have a big passion <laughs> for it. So, hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, very common. And this is also where I'm in my career right now, where I realize that I have to do marketing and sales uh, to get new clients to get better clients and ultimately to to grow and scale and um, you, also, you don't have the time you have to uh, outsource something because um, absolutely you, you do if you do sales and acquire a new client great now you have a new client you're even more busy than you are before so do you have some advice on how to balance um, client outreach um, acquiring new clients and What is the ratio that a ratio that you would find healthy? Is it one third of your time should be spent in marketing and um, outreach, or is it fifty fifty? I think it's different for every person, really. And mm -hmm. I think the question you have to ask yourself is like, what do you want to do, and what don't you want to do? So what I always tell people is like, what is your zone of genius? Like, if you want to be a person that's just like, like, incredible software engineer and you want to just do really high-end software engineering products or projects rather, you could <coughs> hire a sales team and, you know, hire a ops team and you could stay doing that thing. I think the thing that most people have to realize is that when you're running a business, it's less about the what and more about the who. So you got to get the people on the, on the seats in the bus, as they always say, it's like every book always talks about it. And it's true. It's great advice. It's like, Don't focus on what, focus on who. You have a bunch of things that have to get done. Who's going to do those things? Is it you? Is it somebody else? And then I think the thing I always say to people is like, give away your Legos, right? Like what are the blocks and bricks that, that require the building of the business that you don't want to do and give those things away? That was something, that was a long, hard lesson I learned myself is like, I ended up giving away the things that I didn't want to give away. And then the process of getting them back is really, really difficult. Uh, okay. I like to switch a little bit uh, from the topic. Um, can you talk a little bit about the creative industry um, in your industry uh, or in your experience? Um, what are some of the more challenging aspects of doing creative work with clients? 
Yeah, I think the hardest thing today, I've been doing this for about 20 years. In my opinion, the hardest thing is sharing a set of values and goals for what the outcomes need to look like. I think the biggest thing that's a challenge with clients is you know, they're hiring you to solve a problem, but a lot of times they, you have to figure out what their vision is and how they want to work, right? Because as much as I'd like to tell you that we're always designing these great experiences for the end customer, the reality is our customer as the service provider is the client. So even if what the client says is wrong, in some cases, it could be right. So um, I've got myself in the trouble over the years where I'm like, no, 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 this is not what the user would want. And here's the proof that this is what the user wants or doesn't want. Um, so I think in that case, you have to give people choices. You have to say like, look, are you looking for a partner that's going to help you to solve a problem this way? Or are you looking for a partner who's just going to be a yes person and just yes, 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 whatever you want. I've always been the, the growth partner, but I do think that some clients are really looking for just like a person that they can delegate work to and that can do the work. And so you have to figure out like who you want to be or what you're willing to be and then set, up, set the boundaries against that. Because it's, it's a difficult thing, I think, in the creative industry. You know, you have to do good work to get to get good work. You have to, you know, deliver for your clients. Do what you say you're going to do. Which, as crazy common as that might sound, I've met some people that do not deliver on their promises. So I think you got to go above and beyond today to get clients, to win clients, to keep clients, and then you got to make sure you're constantly delivering value. Because I think you have to think the the thing you have to realize is that there's a hundred other people that are in that client's inbox, that are in that client's DMs, that are just waiting for you to fuck up so that they can step in and take the business from you. And I think that's challenging. Um, and it makes you really think in terms of relationships and not just transactions because you know everybody wants that cool client that you just got or everybody wants that client that you're chasing. So having been on both sides of that table, that's helped me really realize like where the opportunities does and doesn't lie. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've been there where you... Um know what for the end consumer probably would be the best result but the client that you're working for that is paying you uh, has a different opinion and uh, it's sometimes frustrating um yeah I, I, what, I would have... say, what i would say to people is opinions are like assholes most of them stink <laughs> if you have a client that is that has a different vision and um you're trying to explain it to him but it it just doesn't work. How quickly do you move on? Is there, if, if you do, do you try to make it work with a client if, if the visions don't align or is it just a no-go criteria and you have to find someone that is that you can work with? It's a really good question. I mean, my vantage point is you shouldn't take a client unless your visions align. So I tend to do a lot more upfront due diligence before I work with a client to make sure that we're like-minded and that we're simpatico. And if there's alignment there, then we can go from there. Um, but I think if you get yourself into a situation where there's just not alignment, I think what you have to do is figure out like, maybe it's, you know, not great people are always great for one another. So I think everything in this industry is about chemistry. So if you don't have chemistry with your clients and you're not going in the same direction, it makes sense to part ways before, you know, more people get hurt in the process. So the year is almost over. It's time to look uh, in, into the next year. And I think what a lot of people are asking themselves is, especially when it comes to social media and digital marketing, what is going to be the next thing? Where Where is going to be the most attention in 2024? And what would 
your suggestion be to businesses? Um, what's the next thing from a marketing standpoint that one should pay attention to? Yeah. So I think the elephant in the room is AI. You know, mm -hmm. like no matter which way you turn, left, right, up or down, AI is in the room. Um, you have very smart people that are very well capitalized that are chasing down AGI or artificial general intelligence. You know, despite the, the crumble of open AI that just happened this past weekend, which everyone's talking about all over the Internet. Um, the reality is you have these AI research labs that have already been able to prove that large language models or LLMs can save people a lot of time. Things that would normally take humans to do um, repetitive tasks now can be automated in new ways like never before. So I think what we have to think about in the next year is what's the competitive advantage that your business has, whether it's the skill that you have or the skills that you know your customers tell you that you have. So what I would say, <coughs> sorry, you're gonna have to edit all those coughs out. Um, what I would say in 2024 is the pace of change is accelerating and will continue to accelerate. So what you have to be really, really focused on is listening to where the market's going. And I think that next year in 2024, those who are able to continue to be agile and, and bend, you know, it's a, the, there's a quote that comes to mind for me um, from Bruce, Bruce Lee. And he says, be like water. And the reason he says that, I think, is that, you know, water can take shape in any form, right? It can fill this cup. If I pour it out, it just takes the shape of, you know, spilling all over my desk. It can take many different shapes. I think content is liquid. I think content is like experiences are liquid. And I think we have to think about customers are going to change a lot over what they're expecting. And I think that the more that these tools become more democratized, meaning they're faster, better, cheaper, you know, what normally would cost somebody $20,000 a month, they can get for $20 a month if they sign up for ChatGPT+. If they know how to use that tool, if they know how to you know hook that tool or that API into different software technologies. So I think what's really important is like understanding the unique value that you deliver. And if in 2024, you're selling vitamins and not painkillers, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second, you're going to find yourself probably not succeeding when against the competitors. I think the world is about faster, better, cheaper. And if you're not accelerating towards that pace of differentiation of faster, better, cheaper, you're going to lose. Um, so what I would say to new entrepreneurs or even seasoned entrepreneurs that have been doing it a long time is, you know, buckle up because it's about to get a whole lot faster. It's about to get a whole lot different. So should we be us in the creative space afraid of AI? Um, is there a big shift happening where some jobs are just going to disappear or is it um, a new relationship with a new technology that is developing? Yeah. When was the last time you hired a painter to paint your portrait? A long time ago. Probably not in your lifetime, right? Probably before you were yeah. born. You know, when was the last time you hired a photographer to take a selfie of you? Well, the whole idea of a selfie is you wouldn't hire a photographer, you do it yourself, right? Um, so I think in many cases, many of the jobs of yesterday might not be here tomorrow. You know, the, the artisans and the artists um, that are able to build a community and build an audience, I think will exist in a more bespoke way, right? The same way that people don't buy CDs anymore, they just listen to streaming. But some people do buy vinyl, 
to have mm-hmm. that kind of high-end quality experience, right? I was going to make that point, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but there's a reason for that because what vinyl delivers is a unique experience, right? It's a warmer acoustic tone. It's a more pure expression of the music. Um, it sounds better, right? In many ways, there's a value differentiator between both the value it provides and the experience and the difference. So what to answer your question, a lot of jobs are going to be displaced. Some will be replaced, but I think what it'll also do is create a bunch more jobs. So I think we have to stop thinking about like an AI is coming for our job. The reality is someone using AI is coming for our job. So what we have to do is we have to get savvy on these tools and being afraid is not going to help. You want to be afraid? Be afraid. You want to not be afraid? Don't be afraid. But the one thing you all have to do, we all have to do is we have to evolve. Because if you're going to live on this planet and you're going to be, you know, connected to the the doom scrolling of modern society, if you're on the internet, connected to the internet and in the knowledge economy, these AI tools are going to affect you in some way, shape or form from Mm. scientists to marketers, to lawyers, to tax accountants. These tools are going to accelerate the pace of change. And I think that we have to lean into it in ways where we can tap into it. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who works on autonomous cars for a living. I was talking to him last night and he basically was like, AI is like the TI-83 calculator that we had when we were kids in school, right? You could do a whole lot more with a graphing calculator than you could with an old school, you know, regular um, calculator. But the reality is it's just a faster, better calculator. So those who know how to use the tools are going to be the ones that are going to advance. And those who don't know how to use the tools are going to be the ones that are going to get left behind. And that is a very real thing that's happening right now that I think a lot of people have to wake up to no matter what it is. You as a video editor, right? You've got AI tools now that are auto editing things. You've got Adobe Premiere has got a, you know, features to be able to sync things to audio and do all these fancy things that used to take creative professionals like ourselves a lot of time, a lot of manual work. So I think that what we have to look at now is where can we add unique value? If I'm a video editor and I just edit and cut and chop things for a living, I'd be really worried about my job. If I'm a storyteller that uses video editing and video as a medium to tell stories, I wouldn't be too worried because these AIs are not going to be able to replace the unique mind of a great storyteller. But two people know how to use video editing softwares. One's just using the tool and one's a craftsman or a master and using the tool as a medium for expression. So the question I'd ask you is, which one do you think is going to be around in two years? What are some uh, of the tools that you are most excited about? The tools I'm the most excited about are the interconnected agents, because I think the interconnected Mm -hmm. agent tools allow us to string together different technologies that have multiple use cases. So what I tell people a lot is that I think AI is the new UI. And what I mean by that is that we're getting that much better at speech to text or text to video or text to image. Um, so I think that the tools I'm the most excited about are the ones that interconnect technologies together. So right now we've got these foundation models or LLMs, right? The, the main ones, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Google Bard, Anthropics, mm-hmm. Claude, um, OpenAI's ChatGPT. Um, there's a couple of other ones out there, but I think the reality is these are foundation models, right? These are the, the core LLMs that everyone's kind of aware of at this point. But what I think we're going to start to see more of this upcoming year is, custom models and very specific AIs that are trained to do very specific things. And I think these specialty AIs, these specialty um, models are going to be the things that are going to be really, really useful or valuable. Um, And, you know, a good example of that would be 
if you've ever used like text image to like generate an image using like Dolly or Midjourney, it's kind of cool. And you might have used Stable Diffusion, which is open source. You can get it for free online. But there's certain models that are really fine-tuned or really trained on very specific things. For example, there's a Stable Diffusion model that I use that's trained on a specific icon style. So when I need an icon for a design that one of my team members is working on, I can just send the words to the icon and the AI and the, the, the fine-tuned model is going to give me back a really good icon, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very specific use case of like a core foundation model that's now fine-tuned for a specific use case. So why agents? Why am I excited about that, right? Well, sure, I could use ChatGPT and a plugin for ChatGPT that says, I'm looking to go to dinner tonight with Leon, right? Or I can say, book me dinner at seven o'clock on Friday with Leon. And it already knows what Leon's into because it already has your preferences, already has my preferences, already has that memory there, knows what's open, knows what's closed based on tapping into a reservation database. That specific use case is going to be much more specific, right? Mm -hmm. And then if I'm like, hey, also go plan the entire trip around that and anticipate that. That's why I get excited about tools like Cognosis or other tools that are really designed, like, like baby AGI, all these different kinds of ideas of autonomous agents, I think are going to be really, really interesting. I'll give you a very specific example. A common thing that we do in the marketing world is we listen to customers what they say. So if it's a video or an audio message or a text message, like reviews, for example, if you have 100,000 reviews, we can comb through that data and we can do that very, very quickly. We can also research specific things. So I think the power of these like retrieval processes now is what would normally take a human a lot of time to go through manually in something. We can sort of quickly like chunk through the information using some of these tools. So those are the things that I'm really excited about right now is how do I save time? Again, faster, better, stronger, faster, better, stronger. And that's ultimately the thing I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. I think uh, the research um, option you have with ChatGPT and, and uh, Google Bard, it's, uh, th that's really an, an improvement. I also tried writing um, scripts and stuff um, with ChatGPT and it does write you something, but it's usually not uh, that good. But the research capabilities, um, I also see a huge uh, opportunity there, especially for um, customer support and things like that. I mean, we have Siri and these um, Alexa, and I always wondered why why they never <laughs> improve. It seems they, they stay um, as bad as they always have. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm guessing um, Apple and Google and Amazon are working on uh, putting AI uh, behind that as well. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, argu arguably, they already are based on AI, right? Like all these things are powered by, you know, natural language processing, um, you know, speech to text algorithms, models that are like trained on big data, um, you know, Amazon, Google, etc. They're they're all true AI. How exactly would you define artificial intelligence? Because a trend that I don't like as much that I'm also seeing right now is that a lot of businesses are jumping on this train AI. Every tool that is that does something on the internet is AI. It's like the, the smart 
everything a couple of years ago was smart. The smart fridge, the smart TV, everything was smart. Now everything is AI. Where do you draw the line? What's an AI tool and what's it just a regular, well, what's the alternative, just a script? A it's a really good question. I mean, if, if I answer this through like a technological way, what I would say is an AI is something that is using either a trained model on something or a neural net on something um, or from a tech perspective, I'd say when something's programmed, it has a finite set of outcomes, right? Mm. Um, when something is generative using an LLM, large language model or a neural net that's trained against the model, um, what's in that vector database or what's in that, the weights and biases of that particular AI, um, the result set is a little bit more, it's not truly infinite, but it's a little bit more infinite and a lot less finite based on how that AI is set up. So mm. it's, I'm trying to not get into too much tech jargon here, but like, I think that language is a powerful thing. And a lot of what people are saying is AI is not AI. It's just like a fancy database or it's just a fancy, <laughs> like a simple algorithm, um, which returns the results. But I think that with advanced machine learning and, you know, the, the PT is pre-trained, right? That's what the PT stands for in the GPT, right? Generative uh, pre-trained transformer. So I think the interesting thing about these, I would say LLMs differ drastically from standard machine learning practices because of what you're retrieving and how it's being retrieved. Um, so I think that the same way that you saw everything was a smart, 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 now everything's AI. I think the future will be like, everything is like, you know, probably call it smart AI and then it'll be AGI. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm being playful obviously a little bit, but it's, I think that's ultimately where things are going is, um, Nowadays, if you have GitHub and a couple minutes, you can spin up an AI app. Um, and if you have the right uh, AI, you can write most of the code for you as well. But I think that there's um, there are limitations to what these things can do so far. Um, you know, GPT-4 can help a lot with coding, but, you know, it writes a lot of derivative code based on what it was trained on. So hence the PT in GPT. Um, but I do think that it's getting better. I think the more that we have um, advanced neural nets that are um, able to continuously refine and retrain a model, it's getting a lot less expensive to train models now. Mm. Um, and I think as a result of it, you know, you can basically run an LLM on your laptop if you've got the right amount of GPU power, right? You know, you look at some of these new machines that Apple just put out the M3 or um, you look at... Um, just what NVIDIA has done with some of their GPU processors. So like you no longer need access to really expensive computing power because the cost of computation has gone down. And I think that the lower the cost for compute goes, the higher the possibilities will go. So much that I think we'll get to a place where we have the same level of power that some of these old versions of the cloud could deliver in terms of compute, that sort of thing. So um yeah, that's that's how I would answer that. If we go five years in the future, what is our economy going to look like, in your opinion? 
What is our economy going to look like? Yeah, just generally. Is it going to be a big uh, difference uh, compared to to today, how we do business, how everything is working? Or is it basically going to be the same and we have just some more efficient uh, processes? And I think technologically it's going to look a lot different, but I think human nature is human nature, right? So mm. fear, greed, and love are still going to drive you know, human society, as long as we have human society. Um, so I think to that end, it's going to look very much like the same. You know, the rich are going to keep getting richer. The poor are going to keep getting poorer. Um, you know, we'll definitely have, you know, classism and structures that will be, you know, further accelerated and amplified. Um, that I think kind of sucks, to be honest with you. Um, but I do think that the way that these markets are designed, you know, everyone was predicting that crypto and Web3 and decentralized world was going to happen like tomorrow. And then we saw everything that happened with, you know, the crypto winter crash last year and the whole thing. I think we're a long ways off as a society for being able to further advance in a very significant way. You know, I'd like to tell you in five years that everybody will be in self-driving hovercrafts and we'll have all these, you know, automated cobots and robots that are helping us make our lives better so that we can all have much more fun and stay much more connected. But I don't know if I believe that that's going to be the case in five years. I think what's going to happen mm -hmm. is that, you know, I think that you'll continue to see the birth of what I call the new millionaire. And what I, what I think the new millionaire is, is solopreneurs, independent people who understand the creator economy, how to find a niche, how to deliver value to a very specific audience and how to create a force multiplier for that or a flywheel on that. And I think we're going to see more multi-million dollar business solopreneurs in the next five years than we've seen in the next 50, in the last 50 years, in my opinion, because you can do more with less now, you know, hmm. nowadays using tools like Zapier and GPT-4 and a couple other things, you can essentially do the job of a 50, 60, 70 person team because of what's possible with these very inexpensive, you know, cloud software as a service applications. Um, but I think fundamentally that the same core principles of society are going to hold true five years from now. Now, 50 years from now, I think we'll definitely have, you know, things like quantum will have, you know, quantum will fundamentally transform civilization in a meaningful way. You know, quantum and AI together, I think is going to completely transform the world in a way that you and I have never seen. But we're a ways off from that. And it's going to take more than a couple of tech, you know, tech bro billionaires to dump some money into research labs to make that happen. But I do think that that's a world we can see, you know, you're a bit younger than me from, from at least you look a little bit younger than me. Um, I imagine that's a world you'll see, maybe not a world I'll see. Um, but who knows? Maybe by then I can just transfer my consciousness to a machine and it's a synthetic humanoid robot. So you don't think the robots are going to enslave us like in, in a Simpson episode that I saw a really long time ago? <laughs> do you think we... we, we um, going to live with with the AI intelligence, or is it going to destroy us? I mean, that's pretty much the uh, the biggest question of all, right? Look, we can look at this through the lens of dystopia, or we can look at this through the lens of utopia. I believe in the end, love always wins. Um, but what I would say is, right now we are programming the machines, we are governing the machines, and we are setting the principles that these machines run on. The people and the principles define the platforms. But at some point, if the platform 
is not governed in the right way, if the right ethics and privacy and things are not set up, I do believe that you know the, the big question that's happening is, will AI end or create World War III? Hmm. I would like to believe it'll end it before it ever happens. Yeah. But you know, there's you can get both of that on the internet if you dig deep enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'm also always really optimistic because I think we as human race don't give us enough credit. I mean, I think we are as species so compassionate with our nature and as not not always but compared to other species, uh, we have this consciousness. Uh, to care about animals, for example. And I'm just thinking if we create a new intelligence, why would it, wouldn't it be passionate towards us? Why wouldn't that intelligence um, not want to help us the way we help other uh, things in our environment? So, so check this out, right? We think we're at the top of the food chain, right? So... I'm okay with someone going out and killing an animal so that I can have a cheeseburger. Well, at some point when these supercomputers evolve beyond us, if there's a reason for them to feed on us the same way that we feed on other species, my gut tells me that they might. And what I mean by that specifically is that if we got to a place where there was no more computing power available and very much like the matrix. If the machines needed a power source because the sun burnt out or something happened, like we see in these sci-fi movies, where do you think the machines are going to get the power from? So I think that like, that's probably like more dystopian view, like a hundred years from now, like when, if we don't become a multi-planetary species or something, but, um, but yeah, now we're getting more into like, you know, Philip K. Dick, uh, <laughs> science fiction novels. Yeah, I mean, one thing is for sure there is um, there is going to be a lot more interesting video, uh, movie, and book book concepts in the next coming years with all this AI. I mean, if I um, think about the stuff that people were thinking in in the fifties and sixties, what life would be like in the two thousands, and now we look at um, thinking about what maybe life will be in the three thousands or something like that. Um, there is going to be a lot of um, entertainment value, definitely. And no, hundred percent. It's um, yeah. it's interesting, but like many of the same shapes of stories hold true. You know, yes, the... that's what you said earlier that um, human nature stays the same, and that's also something in marketing. I think a lot of people forget um, in all of this that although the tools maybe change, um, the people that we market to the human connections, they, they are still um, work with the same words. Yeah, yeah no, well, well said for sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. This was such an interesting, um, well, uh, interviewed uh, discussion, uh, change of ideas. Do you have anything you want, want to add or is there something you want to talk about? No, just wishing you luck with the show. I um, appreciate you having me on. Um, I look forward to when you're at episode 300. We can look back on this this <laughs> month. <laughs>